Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. set it up though. So you ever have uh, one of those songs that you really like the song until you listen to it and you're like, what? Right? You ever have that happen? You ever find yourself singing a song and, and in the middle of one of the lines in a song, you're like, whoa, I shouldn't be singing that. Well, I had this experience where um, somewhere earlier in the summer, I was at an event and this song was, was being sung. And after the first verse, I literally almost said out loud, this is the dumbest song I've ever heard. Now, I don't want to be unkind, so let's not say dumbest song, but it is the most theologically inaccurate song you could ever possibly write. Every one of you has heard this song. Every one of you knows the words, and you could sing along with it. Um, but, but what I want to challenge us to think about is this. Let's think more deeply on what we do and what we say. So for the first time I think I've ever done, I wanna, I wanna look at a secular song from a biblical perspective. I've never done this in a sermon, I should say. We should do this about every song we sing, not just secular songs, but we should do this with worship songs. We ought to say, does the Bible say what I am proclaiming with this song? So with that, Let's see if you recognize this song. I know you will. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us above us only sky imagine all the people So y'all familiar with that song, right? Now, I will tell you, that is a really catchy tune, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good song in terms of, of the musicality of it. it, it it's, not, it's not 
complicated. It's incredibly simple. It's the same melody over and over and over. If you print out the words, it's like that small. But, but here's the issue that I, that I have with this song. And again, this is, not a, this is not a rant or a rave. This is really trying to help us to see how we're supposed to look at things through a biblical worldview. Not just things, but everything. Because if you think that you don't learn from stuff when you don't realize you're learning, you need to think again. We're constantly learning. What we put into our minds and our hearts is what's going to come out unconsciously or subconsciously in the way we act. If you don't believe me, just check this out. You hang out with somebody who, who says certain phrases long enough, and you will start saying those freeze phrases, right? This happened to us when we were kids. Hannah, and, Hannah Montana was a thing. When I, I say we were kids, when we had kids, well, we still have kids. You know what I mean? When they were little. Hannah Montana was a thing, and we, we watched Hannah Montana like umpteen billion times, and I, I noticed that the phrases that they were using on Hannah Montana, our children were using. Some of those were not very respectful phrases. We're like, whoa, whoa time out. But the truth is, everything that we see, everything that we hear, Everything we experience is logged into our brains. Our minds are incredible in the way God has built them. And so we may not be able to find them. We not be able to be, may not be able to find the information, which is why you couldn't find your keys this morning. But all of that is logged in there. But it's bigger than this because this is a song written by John Lennon. Back in, it was released in 1971. The first USA performance was done in Harlem at the Apollo Theater. It was an acoustic set, and it went mainstream quickly. This song, first released in 71, has been recorded and or performed by over 200 artists. Imagine writing a song that 200 musicians, singers, would want to perform over a span of 50 years. Not only that, but it has been played in major venues on a worldwide stage since that time until now. The most recent was in 2021 for the 2020 Olympics. If you watch the opening ceremony, this was one of the songs that was, how many of y'all saw that? Anybody? Now again, I'm not trying to pick at a song. I really just want us to consider though that the message of the song is as far away from a biblical worldview as you could ever get. In fact, it's not just far away. It's actually the antithesis of what God has already decided and said. So overall, this song, in, in a way, is dangerous. It's dangerous because if our little children sing this and they start believing the song... Because obviously this is a worldwide song. People obviously attain to having this kind of a world. If that is the case, we will have a disaster ahead of us. Now, never mind the fact that John Lennon was uh, admittedly a socialist, a Marxist, or a communist. I don't think he ever officially identified, but he certainly had those those leanings, he certainly would study those writings. But this song, he actually said in one of, an, one of his inter, one, he actually said in one of his interviews that it's the Communist Manifesto. Think about that for just a moment. For the 2020 Olympics, we're going to sing the Communist Manifesto. Does that make any sense to anybody in this room besides nobody? <laughs> no, it doesn't. So here, let's do this. Let's look at the scripture and let's pick this song apart in its thought. 
Again, not picking on the singer. Not, I'm, not, I'm not making any value judgment of the author or anybody that's ever saying this. But I do want to look critically at the, mode, at the, uh, at the, the message of the song. The message of the song begins by saying, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Luke chapter 12. Open your Bibles if you have them. If you have your Bible on your phone, uh, go to Luke chapter 12. Jesus spoke concerning the thought of living for today. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story. And the story that he tells is for the purpose of um, verse 16. It's for the purpose of bringing out a biblical point. You might see in your heading the parable of the rich fool. This story is a way of, of Jesus teaching us why we're not to live for today and why or the, the, the result of living for today. The parable goes like this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. And, and Jesus said to him, Friend, who appointed me the judge or arbiter over all of you? He then told them, Watch out, be on your guard against all greed, because one man's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, What should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. I will store all my grain and my goods there. And I will say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded from you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they become? And this is the whole point. He said, then that's how it is with those who store up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In other words, someone who's living for today. Someone who doesn't consider eternity, but someone who just thinks about, let's make the most of this day and, and, because this is all there is. Now look, there's a half-truth in this. We should live as if uh, today is important because day is, today is important. The Bible tells us that every single day we're to live um, um, mindful of the fact that, uh, that God has given us this breath and so we're to make the most of every opportunity. But today is not the end of the end. Today is only one small speck on the scale of eternity. What the song says is imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. In other words, imagine there's nothing else past our physical, limited life. A lot of people live this way. A lot of people live as if this is the best it will ever be. I want to tell you something. When Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it most abundantly, he wasn't just talking about eternal life. He was talking about current life, that there's an abundant life that we begin to live now. I'm not talking about wealth. I'm talking about the, the substance of life. There should be joy in this life, but this life is not all there is. This life is not the end once we physically die. The Bible tells us that Jesus said there is a heaven and there is a hell. So it would do no good to imagine that because if we did, we would simply be imagining something that we already know to not be true. 
Imagine there is no heaven. No, there is a heaven. How do we know? Because Jesus said that there is a heaven. In John chapter 14, open your Bibles there. That's to the right just a little bit. John chapter 14, Jesus speaks to his disciples in verse 1, and, he, and, and he's, he's telling them this because he's recognizing that there, there's some trouble in the, the disciples' hearts. He's recognizing that there's, there's some difficulties in life, right? And so knowing that Jesus, uh, or Jesus knowing that there's some troubles in, in the disciples' life, he's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, don't worry so much about this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And, and really, a better way to translate that is, you are believing in God. Believe also in me. I mean, the, these, the disciples were men who, who knew of God, and they believed in the God of their fathers, but they didn't quite recognize that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so Jesus was saying, if you see the Father, if you see the Son, you've seen the Father. So you, you have a belief in God, but I need you to understand that believing in me is believing in God because I and my Father are one. And so he said, in my Father's house, verse 2, there are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. Okay, so there's obviously something beyond here that God has prepared. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to where I'm going. Jesus is explaining that there is an afterlife. There is a place that God has prepared, not made by human hands, but made by the hands of God. And so this particular scripture doesn't tell us exactly what it's like, but we know from other places in scripture that heaven is not just this place in the sky. I think the best way to say it is heaven is being in the presence of God. So the fullness of the glory of God is present. Where, where the fullness of glo the glory of God is that, is, that is what heaven is like. Now, what does that mean? The glory of God is the overwhelming uh, uh, beauty, the overwhelming power, the overwhelming awe, the overwhelming presence of, of, of who God is and who is God. He is all-knowing. He is all-loving. He is all-powerful. He's a God who is in every place at every time. He is a God who is good. He is a God who is love. Now, he doesn't just love, but he actually is love. He doesn't just do good things, but his character and his nature is that he is good. That's who he is. He's a God who is just. He's a God who is perfect. He is a God who is right. He's a God who is sovereign. That word sovereign means he needs nobody or nothing to exist. He exists eternally all on his own, right? And so heaven, the biblical concept, concept of heaven, eternity in heaven, is the concept of being in God's presence for the rest of eternity. Now, we need to define eternal. Eternal, eternal means that there is no end and there is no beginning, so eternal is a constant, never-ending. We cannot even fathom the length of eternity. If you wanted to kind of see how big your life is in, this, in, in contrast to eternity, take one grain of sand, take one grain of sand, put it on the palm of your hand, 
and then look as far to the left with no buildings and no, no, uh, no hindrances as you could see, and then look as far to the right as you could see, and with no, no uh, hindrances at all, and that speck of sand compared to that distance both ways would be a glimpse of what eternity is like. See, again, our finite minds have a hard time comprehending this, but Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for eternity that I want you to be with me forever and ever and ever. That describes the the infinite love that God has for us and the desire that he has for a relationship with us in this place called heaven. Now, the Bible tells us in Revelation that there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That's a whole other sermon there, but just know that what God has prepared, no eye has seen, no mind can conceive, no ear has heard, how marvelous and how glorious it actually is. And so Jesus spoke of heaven many, many times. But here's the thing. He also spoke of hell. If there is an eternal heaven, being in the presence of God forever, there also must be an alternative, right? So if there's an eternal heaven, then the alternative must be something quite opposite. Well, the only thing opposite of being in the presence of God is what? Not being in the presence of God. And so the Bible uses physical language or pictures that we can understand. Okay, this is how it's described. It's like trying to describe a color to somebody. You can use words and you can get close, but you can know that that those words cannot fully Uh, replace what it would mean to experience what it is that you're talking about. I think when the Bible speaks of hell, it's trying to give us a picture of what it's like, but we're not even anywhere close to understanding it unless we were there presently. But but we can, we can get kind of close or or we can have an idea because of what Jesus speaks of. Now, um, in um, Matthew chapter eight, Jesus is having a conversation with a Roman centurion. So this is not a Jewish man. He's a a Gentile, and yet he's displaying a faith in Jesus and his ability. And Jesus' response to him was to say that he's not found faith like this anywhere in all all of Israel. But in Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus said this, Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith, and I tell you that many will come from the east and the west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So one of the pictures we have of hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now again... There's debate whether or not this is a literal weeping and gnashing of teeth or it's just symbolic. Here's the deal. Whether it's literal or symbolic, there's a point. And any place that you have to describe as it is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth is not a good place. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, wouldn't you agree that any place where there's weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Do you know what gnashing of teeth is? It's, it's, it's this, this basically an insanity. It's, it's, this, it's, a, it's an awful, horrible picture. And Jesus said that there are those who will be in the kingdom of heaven and there will be those who will be placed in outer darkness where there's a weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, you can spend eternity in the presence of your creator, God, or in the absence of your creator, heaven and hell. You say, well, gosh, that's, that's pretty, pretty mean of God. That's, that's, how can a loving God, I mean, isn't this a real question? How can a loving God send a person to hell? I mean, if God is all powerful, if he's all loving, if he's all good, if he's kind, how can he ever possibly send a person to hell? Well, my response to that would be this. What more do you want God to do? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. That word perish speaks of the second death, hell, would not perish but have everlasting life. What more do you want God to do? He loved the world so much that he gave, he sent his only begotten son. Not one of you would let your child die for me. Not one of you, if you had a choice, if you had to make a choice, if, my, if I was here and your child was here and somebody was standing there with the gun saying, you choose, Jeff or your child, not one single human in this place would say, I want you to kill my child, leave my, leave my pastor alone. You might love me, but you don't love me that much. In fact, some of y'all might answer real fast, right? Hope not, but, and the truth is, that's what parents do. They love their children. They protect their children. They guard their children from all that they can guard them. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, not because God did not love his son, but because it was the only possible way for you and for me to be made right with God. There was no other chance to be saved for God so loved what more do you want him to do people say well well I just think that 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 I'm not really so bad that I would deserve that place well here's what I would say to that how bad do you have to be to deserve hell well when you look at the qualifications of the father or the when you look at it at, at who God is and if you look at the law, the law being the law of God, right? How many times should you have to offend it to be worthy of judgment? 20? 100? I mean, what, what's your standard? Because the funny thing is, everybody would have a different standard, wouldn't they? So is, is, our, is our position, we really should let each person decide their own standard for guilt or innocence. Does that work in our country? Do you want that? Do you want every police officer to make up his own rules based on if he likes you or doesn't like you? He can decide if he wants you to go 45 or 55 or 35. Do you want a world? I mean, just nobody would live in a world where everybody just made up their own rules and every law enforcement officer, every judge, every uh, person in authority and power just decided for themselves what was okay and what was not okay. Does that make sense? 
So why would we expect for eternity for God to be something that we're not even willing to accept here on earth? Because we all recognize that that is an, inju- or an unjust, insane way to live. No, the fact is God has said, be perfect. That's his standard. His standard is sinless. His standard is holy. Do you know that the holiness of God is so much so that in the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Covenant was, this, if you don't understand the Ark of the Covenant, we'll, I, we'll have to talk about it later, but, but the Ark of the Covenant was a representation of the presence of God for the Israelite people. That God said, the Ark of the Covenant is, is a representation of, of, of my presence, and so only the priests can touch it. And, and, and they can't touch the Ark, they can only the priests can carry it, and they're to do it with poles, because if you touch the actual Ark, then, then, then you will die because I'm so holy. It was a way of, dis, of, of painting a picture of the, the holiness and the glory and the, the majesty of God. Not because he asserts that of himself. It's, best, it's because that's who he is. It's not like God has to try to earn worth. He is worthy. He doesn't have to earn anything. He already has it. Why does he have it? Because he's the one who said, when there was nothing, let there be, and there was. The next time you speak something into existence, you can be God. But until then, right? The next time I speak something out of nothing into existence, I can be God. But until then, God is God. And so God decides the standard of eternity, and his standard is, be ye perfect, sinless, So one sin, one offending of the law is enough to break my fellowship, break my relationship with God, but God so loved the world. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love for us. He didn't just talk a good talk. He demonstrated his love in that even though we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. No, a person doesn't go to hell because God wants them there. He does, they don't go to hell because God sends them there. They go to hell because they've rejected the Savior, the Rescuer, the substitution, to, to use a theological term. They, they've rejected what Jesus has done to make provision for us to never experience separation from God. Now that is unpalatable for many people. It's truly, truly something that is repulsive to think about. But just be honest. You would not allow the guilty goat to go unpunished if you were a judge. If somebody harmed your child, if somebody did something offensive, you would not be so kind-hearted that you, you know what, just don't worry about it. It's okay. No, do we have a sense of justice inside of us because we were made in the image of God and that's who God is. And yet we can't fix the problem, but God did. The Bible says that he bore our sins upon his own back. He took the punishment and the shame that we deserve so that it's by grace Grace is when you get what you don't deserve, that you are saved, you are rescued, you are snatched from fire through faith. Faith, not works, so that none of, it is grace that we're rescued through faith. That is a pretty good deal, wouldn't you say? By faith. 
So what is the, what is the nature of hell? In, in uh, Luke chapter um, 16, Jesus actually tells a story. Now, again, there are theologians who would disagree on the nature of the story. That some, some would say this is an actual real event, and some would say he was just telling the story to, to, um, to teach us biblical truth. But I would say regardless of which is which, he's still portraying the way that it is by speaking this, right? I mean, he's not going to lie. In Luke chapter 16, the Bible says, verse 19, there was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue. Listen to the words, because I am in agony in this flame. So as Jesus is telling this story to describe what this man is enduring, he is in a place that is so agonizing and it is so, such, so full of torment that he longed to have just a tip of a finger dipped in water to touch on the tip of the tongue for a momentary amount of relief. That is a place that is truly indescribable. Jesus also explains, though, that there is a decision that we have to make while on earth that will determine the eternal destination. Verse 25, son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all of this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass from over here to you cannot, neither can those cross over to us. In other words, there is an eternal destiny that is set The moment a person steps out of this life. There will be a time when you and I will take our last breath. We will take one more breath. And the Bible tells us that God gives us breath. So we also know that there's a moment when we have one last breath that he's given us. And after that final breath, we step out of this life into the next. And when we step out of this life, we are stepping into eternal presence of God or eternal separation from God. We call it heaven and hell. And once we have stepped into the next, next life, there's a great chasm that is formed, never to be crossed. There are those who would like to make God into uh, this, this, this person that the Bible doesn't talk about where God eventually just says, okay, all debts are forgiven, everybody's fine, y'all just come on together. But the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus never spoke of it. In fact, Jesus spoke exactly the awesome, the, the opposite. There's a chasm that cannot be crossed. You say, well, again, how can God do that? And I ask again, what more do you want God to do? So the truth is, we want to live for God on our own terms, in our own way, in our own life, 
And then after we've lived in our own life for us, pretty much ignoring God or using him as fire insurance or using him for what we can get out of him, then we want to go into eternity go, okay, now I want what God has prepared. If you don't want the presence of God now, you do not want his presence for eternity. All of life right now, in a sense, the Bible doesn't say this, but this is the way I picture it. All of life essentially is a dress rehearsal for the real thing once we're in his presence. If you don't like to worship now, you are not going to like the presence of Jesus for eternity. Because the Bible says that we're worshiping him. If you don't like the people next to you now, you're certainly not going to like eternity. If you've got a problem with people of other colors, you're not going to like eternity. If you've got a problem with other cultures, you're not going to like eternity. Why? Because the Bible says that he will take people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to come together and worship Jesus as worthy. Do you see what God has prepared is something far greater than what this earth has to offer, which is exactly the point of what this song is trying to say. Live life today. No, today is but a blip in, the moment, blip in eternity. If today is the best you get, that's a very sad existence. Let me tell you why. All day yesterday, I was limping. Because I, I did something to my knee and it caused me to just kind of, it, it hurt. It doesn't actually, I'm healed. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt today. I don't know what I did. It doesn't hurt today. But yesterday I woke up and it, it was painful. Yesterday I was, I was, I was exhausted because of the heat and the carrying stuff and all. If, if, if this is the best there is, I mean, I'm not complaining. I mean, I love life, but don't get me wrong. If this is the best there is, I have to wear contacts. I mourn. People I love will die. I will have sorrows and I'll have brokenness. If this is the best there is, gosh, that's pretty sad. But what if there was a place where there were no sorrow, there were no tears, there was no pain, there was no suffering, there was no sin, there was no ego, there was none of that stuff. Oh, wait, there is. It's called the kingdom of God. It's called being in the presence of God. We call it heaven. And ultimately a new heaven and a new earth. Living for today? The Bible says not to. So imagine, here's the second, y'all with me here? Okay. So here's the second part, and I have like four minutes till we're out of time. So we got the first verse. Ah, how'd that happen? Imagine there's no countries. Now, just, the, just the, ironic, the, the stupidity here. We're singing this song for the Olympics. <laughs> Imagine there's no countries, then you have no Olympics. And a gold medal winner goes to somebody. What national anthem will we play? None, because there are no national anthems. It's kind of dumb, ain't it? But here's the cool thing. The Bible actually says that Jesus is the one who established countries. Not so much the borders, but he established ethnicities. He established rather um, um, uh, the ethnos. Here's how it happened. In Genesis chapter 11, mankind had one language. They were one people. They had chosen not to fulfill the command of God to, to fill the earth and subdue it. They got to... Uh, 
they got to a place where they, where they thought to themselves, man, this is a nice place. Let's just stay here. And then they started thinking, you know what? We can make it our permanent residence here. We'll take bricks and we'll make them more solid and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll worship ourselves and we'll, I know, we don't need God anymore. We'll build a tower up into the heavens and we can essentially be our own gods. And in Genesis chapter 11, God looked down and he said, uh-uh, not on my earth. He saw the wickedness of man's heart and he saw that the man was pushing God out of the picture, which is exactly what we do today, isn't it? We don't want God. And so they, he, 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 in a mighty, mighty act of kindness, he took his finger and he goes, dink. He knocked the tower over and in doing so, he scrambled the languages of the people. And that's where you went from one nation or one ethnicity to multiple. Why did God do this? Acts chapter 17 verse 26 tells us why. In Acts chapter 17 Verse 26, the Bible tells us, let me read it for you exactly so I'm not just paraphrasing it. Actually, I said 1726, not 2617. The scripture says, From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each of us. Why did God spread everybody into different nationalities? So that we could be saved. Again, what more do you want God to do? He confused their languages so that we would find God. But it wasn't so much that we would find God as much as it is that he would come chasing after us to find us. That's what God did actually in Genesis 12 with his own people. That's a whole other sermon as well. So imagine there's no countries. Why? There are. And it's a good thing. By the way, if there were no countries, there would be no South America. If there were no South America, we would not have enchiladas, and that would be a horrible way to live. So, I'm just saying, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Nothing to kill or die for. So we're really saying that what we want is a life with no ambition, with no purpose for living. We just, we're just here. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of things to live for, don't you? My children, my faith, relationships, nothing to live for die for is a very boring way to live. And it's actually an unbiblical way to live. G, or the, the Apostle Paul said this, for I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in something. So, so his reason for living is the gospel. Let's finish this up. No religion too. Well, Psalm 14 actually speaks to that as well. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. It's 1 through 4, really. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. There is no one who looks down from heaven. Excuse me, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there's one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
You want to know the basic premise of this song? The basic premise of this song, I'll skip all the way to the end, is this. We are basically good people. We could solve all the world's problems if we would just be the good people that we actually are. The next verse is, we don't need possessions. Written by a guy who lived in a penthouse in New York City, by the way. Just saying. We don't, we don't need, uh, you know, there's no greed anywhere. We're all in perfect peace. We're brothers. How is that possible when the human heart is as black and corrupt as it is? And I'm not talking about their human heart. I'm talking about your human heart. But you don't need me to tell you that, do you? Because you know what you see? You see the same thing I see when I look in the mirror at myself. I see a heart that the Bible says is deceptive above all else. I don't say that for any other reason than to acknowledge my desperate need for a Savior. I can't pull myself up from the bootstraps and fix my soul. I can't fix the world by just doing more good things. Jesus did not die for good men. Jesus died for wicked men. He didn't die because we needed a little help. He died because we were condemned and enemies unto God in our own self. So you have the self-righteous and you have those who recognize their own need. The self-righteous, I said last week, can never be saved because they don't know and they won't acknowledge their need for a Savior. Those who are desperate like the one who came before God in the Scripture and said, Have mercy on me, a sinner, for I am wicked. God has mercy. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of passionate about this. Because the ideal is that we'll have peace if we could just do better. But I would say we're doing the best we can. I mean, we are seeing the result of people doing the best they can. We're seeing corruption. We're seeing brokenness. We're seeing all kinds of things that are obviously the end that leads to death. The Bible says there's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end, it only leads to death. But the Bible also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. In other words, acknowledging that we are not our own God. Now, I know most of us in this room recognize our need for God. I know most of us recognize our need for a Savior but it's more than just intellectually understanding that. It's, it's an actual action. Those who will trust by faith in the work of Jesus. So I want to invite you this morning to take a moment and examine your own heart. Are you, are you living or trying to live this song in your life to where you are the master and commander of your own life? Or have you recognized your need for a Savior? Not just, you don't need just a little bit of grace. You need every ounce of grace. I need every ounce of grace. I don't need just a half measure. I need a full measure. Because I am wicked in my own heart. Left to my own devices, I ruin things. I break things. I destroy things. The only good in me is the good that Jesus Christ brings. 
I know that. And yet, I still have to remind myself that on a daily basis. Close your eyes, if you will, bow your head. If you're here today and you've not ever trusted Jesus Christ, if you're watching by way of TV or on Facebook or some other social media, I want to invite you to trust Jesus. This is not a message to tell you how bad you are. This is a message to tell you how good God is. It's a message to declare that Jesus Christ is worthy of your life. It's a message to say that there's one way to the Father, and that is Jesus. He's made a way. Father, I pray that even now, you would um, you'd speak to us about our own position in you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize that you are a good God. Help us to trust you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.